Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's so good to be here with you, Review, this morning. I'm grateful that my friend Mel is a pastor here. I've known him for over a quarter of a century, believe it or not. And I also learned this morning that Scott Hera is the nephew of our worship leader at our church. Walt Hera has been our worship leader for 20 years with me up there. I'm one of the pastors. And it's been really moving for me to be led by... Uncle Walt's nephew, and uh, he sings pretty just like his uncle. It's beautiful. His uncle's been a professional singer for 40 years and worship leader. It's just amazing. Thank you, Scott. It's been, it's been really cool to see the legacy. One more generation, man. It's beautiful. Stay walking with Jesus. It's good. I've been sending him text messages of your, your leading, so he's, he's loving it. So uh, I'm, I'm just so grateful to be here. It's really good. I'm thankful for this church. You hear so many negative things about the church in media and elsewhere. It's so good to go to churches and meet real Christians who are really loving Jesus and walking with him and walking in faithfulness and making a huge difference in their communities like this one. So I'm so grateful to be here. I really am. And to open the word, what a privilege to do that. I want you to know, it's easy to just look at somebody like me. I'm a professor at Biola University. I teach theology there, and I'm also a pastor at Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada in the same town where Biola is. And it's easy to just look at me as a talking head, but I really want you to know right off the bat that first and foremost, I come as a member of my church where I'm also a pastor. But the, the saints at Grace EV Free are the, the authority under which I do these sorts of things. I answer to them as I answer to Jesus. This is just a few of our folks who serve at our food bank ministry, and they are a delight. These are the people who are take, will take care of my family if I die today. I hope you're walking, not just attending services as a Christian, but really part of a church family where th- this is where you find your community, your identity, the people who care for you and that you care for. This is the family I get to live with in my home on a daily basis. My wife, Donna, of 31 years, we met in high school, and she is an amazing woman. She's just gracious and kind and beautiful and good and gentle and thoughtful and wise and compassionate and diligent. And I could go on and on about how great my wife was. We met in high school, and I had to wait around 18 months, 18 months for her to finally break up with her boyfriend. Uh, and then I moved in like El Nino, even though back then I didn't know what El Nino was, but now I do. It's the Nino. And I am very thankful for her and for our four children. Uh, my daughter Caroline is on your left. She's a beautiful 19-year-old young lady who is a natural leader. And my daughter Paige is in the middle. She's actually here with me this week, but she happily darted out of here to go with the youth to the youth group meeting. She She's my buddy. We hang out. She'll always go with dad if she has enough. The boys will always go with my wife when she's going somewhere if they have a choice. Paige will always go with me, whether it's to a church or Home Depot. She's hanging out with pops. So that's my daughter, Paige, and she is servant-hearted and, and a delight. My, my older son, Sam, is just a tender-hearted boy, and Isaac is always the life of the party, the youngest. And so I'm grateful. So I, I show you this picture because I want you to know I come here not just as a teacher of God's Word, but as a husband and as a father who's working these things out we're talking about today right with you. In, in the trenches, and I want you to know that. I want to talk this morning about communion with God. We usually use the word communion to talk about the Lord's Supper, 
that observance that Christians have done for 2,000 years. Well, that word is important to ponder for a while because it's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Communion is not just a service we have. It's an experience we have with God. That's a fascinating word, communion. What are other words you would use to define the word communion? Fellowship, yeah, that's a good one. Fellowship is a good word, this koinonia that goes beyond just, hey, how about them Lakers? But to depth, a depth of knowledge of one another, a depth of, of fellowship. Yeah, other words you'd use? What is it? Communist. Oh, I same root. Yes, same root. Yeah, it's same root. Uh, yeah, all, all things in common, sure. We, boy, does that derail us in another direction. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, that's beautiful. No, teachers have to reel it back in all the time. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> way to get us thinking. That's good. Yeah. Uh, same idea. It didn't work out well the way they worked that out, but in my opinion... Although some people differ. So, uh, other words in a biblical sense, not a political? Relationship, yeah. Heard one? Family, family, yeah. Other words? Fellowship, yeah. Intimacy, right? Uh, Depth of relationship. The amazing thing about the Christian faith is when you're a Christian, you don't just have a religion you practice or rules you obey or customs you habitually do. It's communion with God. It's frail, fallen, sinful humans. Nevertheless, because of God's gracious provision, having true fellowship, depth of relationship, intimacy with God, that's what we're talking about. And I want us to try to cut right through all of the stuff that can actually get in the way of true communion with God. I remember being struck by this idea a while ago when I was reading J.I. Packer, wonderful British theologian's book about the Puritans. If you have negative stereotypes of the Puritans, it's important to really know who they were. They were incredibly admirable people. But listen to Packer's quotation about the Puritans in his excellent book on them. The Puritans were concerned about communion with God in a way that we're not. I read that and I said, well, what's he up to here? The measure of our unconcern about communion with God is the little we say about it. And I thought to myself when I read that, what do you mean? I, I talk about Christian stuff all the time. But listen to how he distinguishes communion with God from other things. When Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work and Christian interests, their Christian acquaintances, the state of the churches, the problems of theology, but rarely of their daily experience with God. I read that and I thought, wow, if someone listened to me in my conversations throughout my day, even when they were about Christian things, would they come away with the impression, even if they thought I was nuts, would they come away with the impression, that guy really thinks God's real. That guy thinks God's alive. That guy thinks God is present and active and personally at work in his life in profound ways. Would they have no doubt in their mind, whether they believed what I believed or not, that I really believed God was living and active and present and at work in my life? 
That's communion with God. That's so different than just practicing religion. I don't want to overemphasize uh, that to the point where we don't have a place for religious practice. Uh, After all, we're all here this morning. Because we know what? It'll hopefully deepen our communion with God. That's why we're here. And so as we think about communing with God this morning, I want to go to Luke chapter 24. It's a familiar passage. You've probably heard it preached if you've been a Christian a while, mostly on Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, because it's a passage that happens right after the resurrection of Jesus. And it's the discovery of who Jesus really is that two followers of Jesus go through. So let's read this together. Let me pray as we go to the word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are able to have communion with you. Thank you for how profoundly important your word is in this communion. And I pray it would work as it's preached this morning in our lives in significant ways, in transformative ways. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here starts our story. Acts, uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. You ready? Here we go. That very day, what day? Resurrection morning. Two of them, two of who? Disciples of Jesus. Were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Whoa! But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Let's stop right here. This is already a great story. Anybody who thinks the Bible is boring, I must assume has never read it. It's not. This is a great story already. What's going on here? Two disciples are heading back home, and as we'll see, they're disillusioned, they're discouraged, they're sad, and Jesus comes up alongside them, and he's about to enable them in a very intentional way to know who he is and what he's accomplished. And they don't know yet what we know. That's a fun position to be in. Are there any Columbo fans in here? Anybody watch Columbo? I knew this was a classy audience. Yes. Columbo, if you don't know, is an, is an old murder mystery detective show that used to be on. And Columbo was this brilliant but very disheveled man who he would annoy the daylights out of the murderer once he had a hunch that it was the... And he just keeps saying, you know, I have one more question to ask. I don't... I, it's just, it's not adding up. Would you mind if I ask you? And they think he's an idiot, but he's brilliant, right? And you think, oh, that's, that's, but what's different about Columbo murder mysteries from other murder mysteries? What's the first thing that happens in the episode? What's the first thing you see? Any Columbo fans? You see the murder. And you think, well, there goes all the suspense. But no, actually... It's, almost, it's more fun and in some ways more suspenseful when you watch Columbo figure out what you already know. And they just stole that way of storytelling from the Bible. That's what's going on here. We're about to watch these disciples discover what we know and they don't yet. It's really fun. 
and watch how it happens. And you think their eyes were kept. Yeah, it's God who's keeping this from happening. You think, why? Why would God keep them from seeing that Jesus is risen from the dead? We'll see. Hang on. Hang on. Here we go. Watch what happens. So they're talking. Their eyes are kept from recognizing. Verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Is that you this morning? Are you sitting still sad? I have no doubt that many of you came in here this morning with sadness. And if none of you did, I just don't think you're paying attention very well to life. There is plenty to be sad about. If you'll just stop with all the distractions and pay attention. Oh, can you relate to these two who are looking sad? Listen, this passage is for you. Do you know the hopes and fears of all the years is standing with them? They don't need to be sad. But they are. This passage is for you. Here we go. They stood still looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Come on, that's funny. I know the Bible's mostly serious, but it's got some real humor in it, especially when it examines human nature and the folly of our existence together. And in my opinion, Luke is the funniest author in the Bible. And this is just one more example. As he tells this in a way, exactly what happened, that we find the humor in it. Do you realize what's going on here? Jesus says, what are you talking about? And the disciple basically says to him, duh. What, do you live under a rock? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on about Jesus in Jerusalem? And they're talking to Jesus? That's funny in my humble opinion yes so and and listen i love his response what the comedy continues and he said to them what things i love this i love these two words i love these two words they were actually just kind of insulting to him and he says tell me more does he ask that question because he doesn't know what the things are? No. The things are about him. Why does he ask the question? Because he's working with them. He's getting right down and saying, come on, keep going. Recount one more time the things you saw. Remind yourselves what you heard him teach and what you saw him do go through it one more time. Do you know what's one of the most important things I've learned about being a Christian? That so much of being a Christian is not learning new things all the time, but remembering really old things all the time. That's what we're doing. I mean, when Scott led us through these songs, oh, they were saying things in ways that maybe were poetically different than you've heard before. But if you've been a Christian any length of time, it's not a whole bunch of new information. It's very old information that we're reminding ourselves of. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He says, what things? Remind yourselves of what you saw, what you heard, how you were changed. 
That's what we do when we gather. And Jesus is so kind. He's just meeting them right where they are. He says, what things? And they said to him, verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Let's pause there. I want to take you back to grammar school and find the verb in that last sentence. What is the tense of the verb? Past. And the verb is hoped. We had hoped that he was the one. Their hope is past tense. We used to hope, and we're not hoping anymore. They have past tense hope. And I know, you know, I've been, I've been living this Christian life, and I've been walking with, with people long enough to know how much hopelessness there is. You know, in some ways, we have easier lives than human beings have ever had before. And we're more discouraged and more depressed and more anxious and less happy maybe than humans have been before. So where's our hope found? I know some of you came in here on your last gasp of hope and this is for you. And if it's not for you now, you'll need it next week or next month or next year. You need this. Because Jesus is the source of our hope. He's the one who gives us hope. And again, they didn't need to have past tense hope, but that's what it is right now. And Jesus is about to change all of that. And I hope he is for you too. We had hoped he was the one who redeemed Israel. Halfway through verse 21. Yes, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he even seen a vision of angels who said he was still alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And listen to Jesus' tender rebuke. And he said to them, Oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory see he points them back to the Hebrew scriptures and he says why is this unfamiliar to you why is what you've seen happen in Jerusalem to the Messiah news to you You should have been prepared for it because the prophets have been preparing you for it for centuries. And John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, he's the one who said he's prepared the way for the Messiah. And and so he says you should have been prepared. And then listen to what he does. And beginning with Moses, verse 27, and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself why didn't the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to record that sermon here's why I think 
No preacher would ever want to preach again. Would you come and preach at Riverdale? Riverdale no, uh, just read the sermon there in Luke 24. That's all you need to do, Jesus' sermon. I wonder if he'll preach it again for us in heaven. It probably won't have to be on DVDs or anything. We can just listen to it. But, but he preaches this sermon. We'll get back to that. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which we were going. And then I love this. He acted <laughs> as he, if he were going further. What is old wily Jesus up to here? This is so interesting. Well, I'll be going now. He, I'll be going now. What's he doing? Once again, he's not messing with them. He's working with them. He's seeking a response. He's seeking an expression of desire for him, of a need for him, and of a long... No, don't go. He wants them to put that in the words, and that's exactly what they do. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. This is so good. It's just getting better and better every verse. Stay with us. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, listen, he took the bread and blessed it, which means he picked the bread up and he lifted it up like this in an act of gratitude to God. He blessed, he lifts it up and it says he broke it. And then, maybe because they remembered him doing that very thing at the Last Supper, Maybe they saw the nail scars in his hands in that moment. But most definitely because God said, now. And the Holy Spirit took off the blinders. And it says, their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Come on, this is a phenomenal story. I just... I love this story. He's gone. Now, here's what's really interesting about this moment. As soon as they realize he's there in the flesh, he's gone in the flesh. He's not there in the flesh. And you think, what's going on here? What is he doing? You know how I would have responded in that moment? Where'd you go? That's such a ripoff. We just figured it out, and you're gone. Come back. We need you here. They don't respond that way. I find it fascinating that the experience they had with him on the road and in the breaking of the bread which is no doubt a symbol of the Lord's Supper to come they meet with him in a way where they're not feeling like they got ripped off listen to how they reflect on the time it's so instructive he breaks the bread and then he vanishes in verse 32 they said to each other did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures they're grateful. They reflect back on the walk and the broken bread, and they say, something was going on. We couldn't put our finger on it, but didn't you realize that something transformative was happening to us as he opened the scriptures for us on the road and in the breaking of the bread? And what do they do? This is so important. Catch this image. Remember, they're on their way back to Emmaus. They're leaving the place of the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus and the conflict and the persecution and they're heading back home to what they know and to what's safe and familiar and what do they do now that they've seen the risen Lord they rose that same hour 
and they returned to Jerusalem. I love that. They're heading back to Emmaus. They meet Jesus, and they turn back to the place where Jesus died for them, where all the conflict and the turmoil is. They leave the security and the peace and the familiarity of what they had known back home, and they go back to Jerusalem. That's so, such a powerful visual of what it means to be a Christian. You leave the security of your own making and you go back to the place that makes life in some ways more difficult, but it's life with Jesus, which is the only life that matters. And so we find this transformative experience, the burning in their hearts and the transformation of their lives where they turn and head back to Jerusalem. And look what happens. They rose that same hour, verse 33, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11, and those who were with them gathered together, saying they burst in the room. And I think before they can get any words out, the 11 say, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then the two break in and say, and they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Oh, come on. This is fantastic. Here's the first thing we need to know. One, We serve a risen Savior, a living God. How are we able to have communion with God and not just a religion, not just a practice we go through, not just intellectual assent? Because the God with whom we have a relationship is alive. He's real. He's present. He's active. The Savior is alive. He didn't just die for us. He rose for us. The resurrection is the most important thing that's ever happened in all of human history. And we've got to realize that it changed everything forever. Jesus told us it would happen. The Old Testament scriptures prepare us for it to happen. He said everything depends on it. And then when he rises from the dead, he is validated and vindicated in everything he is and everything he said and everything he did. Jesus conquers death. He has a solution to shame and guilt and our need for forgiveness. Do you want a solution to death? You're going to die, you know. I know we try to avoid it at all costs. I know we try to do anything to, to uh, advance aging. Every time I see an, an ad to advance age, you know, don't age as fast as you are. That's impossible. <laughs> That's, it's, not, it's not even true for the milk in your fridge. It can't be true for you, right? You're getting older. Every day, you're one day closer to death. Is that what you came here to hear this morning? <laughs> Happy Sunday to you. Yeah. You, know, you know what Camus said, this existentialist philosopher who had no belief in God? He said the reason people make so much noise on New Year's Eve. Do you ever wonder when you're at a New Year's Eve party, what are we all celebrating exactly right now? You know what Camus, yeah, I made it. I guess that's what it is. But you know what Camus said? He said the reason people make so much noise on New Year's Eve is to drown out the sound of the grass growing on their graves. I bet he didn't get invited to many parties. But I think there's so much truth in that. We try to act like now we're going to die. But do you have a solution to death? You try to explain it away in a, in a circle of life, Lion King sort of way? That's not a sufficient solution to me. Oh, I'll become fertilizer. That's great. No, it, that's not great. I need a solution to death. And I need a solution to the shame and the guilt and the need for forgiveness I know I have. And every human knows they have. It's been said human beings are incurably religious. 
We've got to find atonement. We've got to find forgiveness because we know we need it. And we try to, oh no, that's just some neuroses you picked up somewhere along the way. Well, why do all humans have it? Why do we know we need forgiveness and seek all kinds of ways to find it? Well, the great news of the Christian faith is you don't have to make it happen. God has made it happen. He sent his son to die for you and take your place. It's called grace. And it's completely different. Hear me. From every other religion in the world, every other religion is what you do to earn God's favor. The Christian faith is what he has done. So you don't have to, because Jesus has. It's radically different than even some people think Christianity is. That's the good news, and it all comes because of the resurrection. And here's here's something I want you to notice. Luke does not end his gospel with the resurrection. Do you know what he ends it with? The ascension. Look at verse 50. And this is really important. It's an often neglected doctrine about Christ. Verse 50 of chapter 24. Then he led them as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up in heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Why would he end it? And begin his gospel of Acts, which he also wrote with the ascension as well. Why? Because the ascension teaches us that Jesus rose from the dead and never died again. Other people rose from the dead, you know. Lazarus, just days before this. The widow of Nain's son. Jesus, the disciples raised people from the dead. Old Testament prophets raised people from the dead. But what's the huge difference between those resurrections and Jesus' resurrection? He never died again. Every one of those people I just mentioned, they died. Can you imagine being Lazarus' family at funeral number two? (laughs) This feels like deja vu. Well, actually, it did happen before, right? So, yeah, not Jesus. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes and ministers to us and is positioned to return one day. And so Jesus is the ascended Lord. That's why the ascensions in every great creed of the church, from the Apostles' Creed all the way to, I have no doubt, the statement of belief of this church. I haven't looked at it. I guess I should have. But I'm confident it's there. Because it's so important. It it makes sure Jesus is alive and still human and still representing us. He didn't just a nice guy who died for us in history. He's alive and present and active as the resurrected, reigning, ruling Lord of the universe and of your life. And he'll come one day as a judge. Here's the second thing I want you to know. We know Christ according to the scriptures. And you could flip that too. We know the scriptures according to Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, did you see how Jesus revealed himself to his disciples? Here's what I would have done if I were in Jesus' place. And let's all pause and thank God that I'm not. And here's how I, my instinct to reveal myself. I've got these sad disciples. They may be relatives of Jesus. One of them's named Cleopas. He had an uncle Cleopas and an Aunt Mary. These may be relatives, and they're sad, and they're hopeless, and they're discouraged, and they're confused and disillusioned, and he loves them, and he doesn't want them to be like that anymore. And so if I were in that place, I would have just sprinted down the road to Emmaus, yelling the whole way, I'm alive, don't be, no, I would have just appeared, right in front of them and say, see, it's me, I'm alive. Oh, you don't believe it, do you? Watch, I'll turn stones to bread. I'll create a llama. I'll, I'll 
heal a blind man. No, I'll make you blind and then heal you. I'll just, I'll show you Mount Transfiguration glory and knock you over. I'll, I'll cast out demons. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He does exactly what we're doing right now. Opening the scriptures and finding Christ. I find that really encouraging encouraging to do what we're doing right now and to get up in the morning and read my Bible and to go to the scriptures. Did you see it as we read through it? That's why they couldn't see him in the flesh because that's not the main way he wanted them to know him anymore. Why? Because that's not the main way they were going to know him after he ascended and that his people were going to know him for thousands of years and that we're going to know him this morning. He's not here in the flesh. So how do we find Jesus according to the scriptures is how we find Jesus which is why we're the people of the word and we need to become more and more men and women of the word. That's what he does. Did you see it? He opens the scriptures, verse 26. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And then when they reflected back in the time, it wasn't even Jesus in the flesh they emphasized. But they say what in verse 32? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And then when he meets with the rest of the disciples just a few verses later, look what it says he does in verse 44. Jesus says, these are my words I spoke while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Is that deeply encouraging you men and women of the word? Because that's how Jesus himself wanted us to become more and more acquainted with Jesus himself is through the scriptures. The method of knowing Christ that Christ himself used was the Bible. That's why we're devoted to the scriptures. That's why I know this church is devoted to the scriptures. That's why we as individuals need to be devoted to the scriptures. The biblical illiteracy in the church in America is just scary. I know a lot of young people and it seems like they know way more about what's going on on The Bachelor than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It just seems like that's how it is and, and they're so distracted and we've got to be men and women who know the word and that's how we know Christ and we know the scriptures according to Christ which actually brings them alive for us in ways it would never come alive otherwise. What do I mean by that? It's not just a bunch of old stories collected. They're stories that point us to Jesus. They're stories that show us the importance of Jesus. So you don't just read David and Goliath and say, isn't that cool? God loves the little guy. No, that's an Americanization of the story. The real understanding of the story is, is wow, God's people need a mediator, a savior to take on their enemies. And as great as King David was, he wasn't enough. He was just preparation for Jesus to come. And that's what they did. They burst in this room and they said, he opened the Bible for us like we'd never seen before. And no doubt they recounted the sermon Jesus gives and they say, do you know he's right there in Genesis 1-1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He was their creation with the Father and the Spirit. Did you know that he's there in Genesis 3 when God promises the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent and solve this problem that was unleashed on creation in the fall? Do you know, you remember the blood we put on the doorposts in the Exodus that caused the angel of death to pass over and the firstborn sons weren't killed? That's a foreshadowing of Jesus' blood and righteousness because like John the Baptist said, 
When Jesus came and was baptized, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And do you know the whole self-sacrificial system was about him and all the priests and prophets and kings were all about him. And you know how he had a hard time reconciling passages like say Daniel 7 where the Messiah is a ruling, reigning king and Isaiah 53 where he's a suffering servant led to the slaughter as a lamb who doesn't open his mouth. Well, that's understood not by true messiahs as some people think, but he came the first time as a suffering servant and he's coming the next time as a ruling king and judge. He saw, they saw the, the Jesus of the scriptures and they understood the scriptures in light of Jesus. And when we see this, we're transformed by them. And because Jesus himself said, you search the scriptures, speaking to the religious leaders, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus points to this. The the apostle Peter points to this in his preaching. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Uh, Paul says it to Agrippa. I stand here testifying both to great and small, saying nothing but what the prophet and Moses said would come to pass. This is an old, old story that has now been fulfilled. It's not fundamentally something new. And we realize that the Holy Spirit transforms us through the Bible. And finally, we realize it's ultimately God who seeks and saves the lost. Look at this. I missed this for years reading this story. But listen to this one verse. It struck me when I read it a while back, like never before. Look what they say in verse 34. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. The rest of them hadn't seen him yet, but he appeared to Simon. So who's Simon? It seems that at the top of Jesus' list of post-resurrection things to do was to go find his old friend who had bitterly denied him. And you know it wasn't to say, how could you get out of my sight? But to say, Peter, I'm alive and it's all going to be okay. Have hope. Oh, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. What's the source of your hope? I know people coming here from all different places and how you think and where you find hope. Oh, there's so many ways we find hope. Some last longer than others. Some just last till the buzz goes away. Some just last until she goes away. Some just last until the 401k goes away. What's your source of hope? What's your source of confidence? Especially when things get really hard. I love our students at Biola, they encourage me so deeply. We get some godly students who come from families who love them. Two of the students who made the biggest impact on me when I got to Biola back in 99, they graduated in 2002. It was Mike and Karen, and they got married after they graduated from Biola. They were superstars there, just godly lovers of Jesus, so mature for their age. And then after graduation, they got plugged into the church and just continued to grow, and we kept up with them. And they had three lovely boys eventually, and they're just a delightful family. They actually just lived just up the road in Dana Point. And we kept up with them. We're just delighted to see the way they were flourishing. But then in October, this just past October, their youngest son, Jack, was diagnosed with leukemia. And just a few weeks later, Mike and Karen had to walk out of the hospital without their boy. 
And, and Jack was a delightful, typical youngest brother. So funny and so full of life. And they walk out of the hospital without him. And, and a few days later, we went to the memorial service just up the road from here. And I want to read to you what Mike and Karen, what Mike and Karen said at the service. Listen to Karen's words. Jack was diagnosed with leukemia on Wednesday, October 2nd. Five short weeks later on Wednesday, November 6th, he took his last breath and went home to Jesus. The Bible tells us, listen to where she goes. Do you hear where she goes? The Bible tells us. I love that. This mom says, the Bible tells us the earth is not our home and that we should wait with eager anticipation for Christ's return. And I'll be honest, my whole life I've always struggled with that. I've had a good life overall and I've experienced justice and goodness, but it's so apparent to me now that this is not our home. And that's why we experience pain and struggle. And I cannot wait for heaven when there's going to be no more suffering or sickness or pain. I cannot wait to hold Jack again. While I'm here, these verses are how I picture now. In Matthew it says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Friends, Karen says, my heart is broken. I miss Jack so much. I feel as if my arm is torn off. But I'm not standing on Jack. My feet are on Jesus. And even though it feels like there's a hurricane all around me and I'm buffeted in every direction, I'm not overwhelmed. My feet have a solid surface that cannot be shaken. I have peace amidst a very painful storm but not by my own strength or because I'm strong, but because of God's mercy on me. It's in our weakness that he is strong. And then she quotes Psalm 62. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my rock and my refuge. I need to ask you, what is your rock? Where is your refuge? If it's anything but Jesus, it will not be enough. I promise you. He alone is the one who can bring the security and the hope and the safety and the forgiveness and the victory over death we all desperately need. Heavenly Father, help us to trust in Christ like never before. Every one of us, those who walked in here not knowing Jesus, Lord, I pray they'd walk out having turned from their selves and sin and resting in Jesus alone for their forgiveness and communion with you. For those of us who have been walking with Jesus, even for decades and decades, Lord, I pray that we would have deeper communion than ever, depending on him more than ever, enjoying him more than ever, because he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. We thank Pastor Eric. Let's stand together. You are way maker, miracle worker, promise keep light in the darkness, my God. That is who you are. You are way maker, miracle worker, promise.
have home group leaders and elders up front to pray with you. If you need prayer, please go in peace and live this week.